Hey Conjugate Chat friends, this is Mike Cunningham from Gill Athletics and I need your help or maybe I need to help you. See, we have a crap ton of rubber bumper plates and other weight room items that we need to clearance. We need to clear them out of our factory. That's right, a crap ton. That's the official measurement. All offers will be considered. Email me at mcunningham at gillathletics.com to see the full list and check out the show notes right here on Conjugate Chats for a link to see the items and my email address. Thanks everybody and stay strong. And welcome back to another episode of the Conjugate Chats. Before going into the episode, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode and uh, taking the time to sit down and just listen in on what we got going on here on the podcast today. Uh, a couple of things before we get going into the episode is uh, I want to do a couple ad reads for our sponsors, starting with the DOYSC, the Department of Young Strength Coaches. This group is designed for young strength coaches wanting to go into the field of strength conditioning, whether that's CSCS prep, GA or internship opportunities, or even live discussions. They are a resource for young coaches to take advantage of. I'll put the link to the Discord in the description of this episode. Also, Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. Their powerhouse platform provides Coaches with the elevated experience when it comes to program development, data tracking, and staying connected with athletes and clients. Team Builder is also full of tools that coaches need, like multiple max training methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with the promo code CONJUGATE to receive a 30-day free trial as well as a 52-week football workout program. Please be sure to sit back, listen in, and enjoy this episode of the Conjugate Chats. Thank you. And welcome back to another episode of the Conjugate Chat. I am your host, Joe Mark Raspberry, current strength coach looking for a spot to land. I'm on here with Coach Michael Fahey. And um, I'm just going to let him introduce himself and what he does and everything in between like that. Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast here. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been listening for a long time. I think I got caught in... Uh, or have caught up since maybe a, a month or two after you started doing them. And I've been been listening since then. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, my introduction, I'm a filmmaker um, who has a great interest in coaching in strength and conditioning. I was an athlete when I was younger. I played football uh, all through high school. I, I played basketball, though I wasn't any good at it. Um, I played in, and I was a thrower through shot put and discus, had the opportunity to walk on at some ACC schools as a thrower, um, had, you know, a power five offer in football for a, a top 40 type school. Um, but I had this weird dream when I was younger playing in the Ivy Leagues. And then I came to find out in the Ivy Leagues, they have a lot different academic requirements. And um, though I had good enough grades to get into, say, a, a sort of regular Big Ten school, um, 
I was going to have to gray shirt for the IVs that I was looking at. And I didn't, this is back in the early 2000s. I didn't have a lot of good sort of guidance on how that whole process went. So the idea of essentially taking like, you know, as a, as an honor roll student and a kid with like 1300 plus SAT, um, I really did not understand like, you know, how, how do I have like, you know, things on my tassels and stuff when I graduate high school, but I'm like still not good enough to just come play football at a place like say Cornell. Um, so I wasn't too big on the idea of repeating an extra semester of kind of fake high school, uh, just to pad my, my GPA a little bit. Um, and I ended up, um, I also had a, a film school scholarship offer to another school here in Florida. And at the last minute, I kind of called an audible and I decided to go to Florida state for film school. Um, and then I got kicked out of film school for budget reasons and ended up finishing out through communications, but it worked out well. I edited a movie called Forks Over Knives shortly after graduating FSU. Um, that ended up being one of the most watched documentaries of the 2010s, and uh, I believe might still be the most watched documentary on Netflix uh, in their history. Um, then ended up working at NFL Network for a couple of years, doing primarily uh, scouting reports for the Combine. Um, and working on Mike Mayock's combine show uh, or his draft show. Um, and then I bounced around, did a lot of reality TV. And somewhere along the way, um, I had kind of joked about a movie that I would always like to make called West Side uh, versus the World. I ended up developing that, directing it, producing it, editing it, um, largely like one man banding it. Um, I should add that I went to Westside for the first time way back in the 90s as a kid. My dad was a CSCS uh, certified coach who was super into, into Westside. We had the first reverse hyper sold in the state of Florida. Dave Tate came down and did some of the first elite FTS seminars that he traveled for at our gym down in Tallahassee in 2000, 2001, 2004, I want to say. Um so like Dave Tate taught me how to box squat, things like that. So I had a really, I had a really weird sort of this dual history of, you know, academically, my training is as an artist um, and a, a filmmaker and journalist. And then um, from an experience side, my, most of my experiences that are not art related um, and that don't involve like holding a camera, they were, they were all athletics and the only reason really that I was good at athletics wasn't because I was great from a skill standpoint, but it was because I was six, three and two forty, and relatively fast and very strong. Um, so it was just a giant sort of rocket of human flesh that could slam into other things in a semi predictable manner. Um, so um, at a certain point I started to kind of get burnt out on film, moved back to Florida, moved back to Tallahassee. And somebody asked me, you know, would I ever want to work with like a high school team? And I accepted the offer and I've bounced around a couple of high schools since then and trained a whole bunch of kids here in Tallahassee. And that's a lot of fun. So I try and do that more and more. I've switched all my businesses to try and um, give me more passive income streams to where I can afford to spend, you know, four to six hours a day, sometimes coaching at a high school 
and not have to worry about, you know, how my bills are going to get paid or anything. And certainly I'm at a public high school in Florida, which is notoriously sort of one of the one of the roughest states in terms of coaching salaries and resources and stuff. So I'm in a very unique uh, position that I understand is like very lucky. Um, and I got here through this very strange circuitous means. Um, and yeah, so that's, I, I came here straight from, from coaching about 50 kids this morning from wrestling and baseball and girls flag football and girls soccer. So, and it's super hot today in Florida. Man, Michael, that's probably one of the more unique avenues that I've seen in the strength conditioning, you know, um, especially from my filmmaking background. And then your father was a big into the West Side and ha- was a CSES. And I mean, that's our, those are great influences on you, you know, as a very early age, man. That's that's completely awesome there. Um, I do want to say one thing before we continue on. Um, Michael. My respect for you has gone through the roof, and especially in the last week or so. Um, you know, with the recent events with me and my wife, what, ha- what has happened, and, um, you know, a few people have reached out, messaged, but, um, you know, I- I'm not going to say the words that you, you wrote to me on, 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 the, on, you know, on your message, but that was probably one of the most uplifting messages I have ever received. So my respect for you, and I just want to put it on the podcast that my respect for you has gone through the roof, man. It's just thank you. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm glad I could I could say something that that you know helped in any kind of small way. Um, yeah, when I saw that, uh, in addition, you know, uh, I have a daughter who, um in the next day or two here, we'll, we'll turn seven months old. Um, and especially since, um, since becoming a father, it's made me, you know, in a, in a lot of regards, I've, I've been extremely lucky. Um, and simultaneously I've had a lot of people around me who have not been as lucky. Um, and I've, I've also had, uh, my fair share of, you know, uh, sort of health scares and, and other things like personally that have, that have hit me over the years. Um, and so again, kind of, you know, like as I, as I, the one part of the, that message that, um, I would like to share, cause I, I, it's a, it's a big thing with me. Um, and especially given our industry and how, Um, how sort of jaded and cynical people are so quick to default to. Um, I've dealt, uh, I've dealt a lot in my life with, you know, as I think most, most people and especially most men have a certain amount of like anger um, at, you know, the, the way that, you know, things have kind of circumstantially laid out and happened at at different points in my life feeling, you know, like it's, it happens so often when you feel like you're very close to something that you've worked for or that was, you know, um, maybe not promised to you, but an opportunity that was like right there for you. And life has this way of, you know, like snatching those things away from you. Um, And 
I see so many people default to that that uh, sort of reaction of 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 anger and cynicism and uh, just you like losing that optimism and that sort of like grace and benefit of the doubt that that you know um, that I know when I was younger I didn't always extend to people and you get older and especially like you know on on Twitter and stuff you see so often where people are they're so quick to argue um, and they're they're so quick to you know most of us have never met each other this is the first i mean i've heard your voice a million times from listening to the podcast um and that's partly why i felt comfortable sending that message it's partly why i said some of the things in there that i said you know um but i see so often where you know people default to assuming the worst from the other person in the interaction and sometimes it's just a man, a matter of, you know, like, I don't always, I don't always read social cues the right way. And the way that I talk is long and meandering and um, is full of these sort of like clauses that kind of set you up to think that I'm about to say one thing. And by the time the sentence ends, I've actually swung over to the other, you know, just the way that I talk. And, you know, there are times when like, say I've written something and people assume you know or someone's written something to me and and you know this like knee jerk uh sort of reaction to assume kind of the argumentative side from someone else or to assume just in general to assume that the other person somehow wanted to insult you or say that they were better than you or put you down and sometimes it's just you know yo when we type things it doesn't come off right or you know you know, some people kind of play rougher than others with their language. Um, and oftentimes you just kind of catch someone like in a, in kind of a funky mood or something. So there's, there's a level of grace that, um, like I've definitely seen from you in terms of interacting with people. I've never heard of anyone having a conflict with you, you know, like in, in a, in a very conflict sort of ridden space where you you seem to know a lot of a lot of the people who have voices and yet everyone seems to have high remarks you know and things to say of you and i'd credit like uh, you know again to kind of expose a little bit of what i said to you um i credit a lot of that to how you interact with people there's always sort of a kindness to it um and so uh yeah i knew you were going through a hard time um, but just wanted you to, you know, keep the faith and, and no matter what happens or how hard it is, you know, like to keep that, that sort of inherent optimism and, uh, courtesy and grace that you extend to others, you know, like, and, and as I said, like it, you have to be strong in order to do that. And that was, you know, like, a, as I said, within the message, that's why I knew that you would be able to get through like everything that you're going through is simply because when you don't have to be strong, when you could just kind of join in with the crowd and pile on to people, when there are easy wins to be had, you're not the type of person who takes them. Um, so for all the listeners, that's the thing that I really respect about John Mark um, and find really endearing about him. And I, you know, I'm glad that uh, there's someone out there who, who does have so many connections and does shine sort of that 
very positive light kind of all the time. Um, and that's, that's part of why I think that you'll, you know, ultimately go far within this realm and, and just in life in general. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I really do appreciate everything. And, you know, that, that message is something I've read probably about 10 times now and something that, you know, I'll probably continue to read as encouragement and, um, and just something that, you know, kind of push through, you know, the harder times and man, I, I, I can't thank you enough, but we're not here to, to yeah. dwell in emotions and everything like that, man. We're here to talk about strength. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, let's go ahead and talk about, you know, what we're, what we're here to actually talk about, man. Um, so first thing is there's no secret, man. You mm -hmm. and a few others are big into the conjugate style training. Mm -hmm. So why that method in particular? And go and tell us a little bit more about, like, how do you implement it into your program? Um, sure. Yeah, I was, you know, well, number one, obviously, I was introduced to Westside way back in the 90s. You know, so as a young kid, uh, you know, even before... I, Excuse me. Even before I started training, the Dr. Pepper's hitting hard today. Even before I started training, um, it was something that, you know, when I would come home from school, my dad would be sitting in the kitchen, which was, you know, connected to our garage, which is where his gym was. Um, and he had monoliths and belt squats and reverse hypers and Catham glutes. I mean, we had we had the most tricked out facility in North Florida, and that includes you know, FSU, they had more square footage, they had more, you know, more copies of the pieces of equipment. But we had the best facility in town by a long shot. Um, and we would have people drive in from, you know, South Georgia, um, all over Florida. Um, we had a guy once visit from Australia, uh, just to come deadlift in our garage. Um, and so kanji, it was sort of like my native tongue. You know, that's how I came to view training. And as you know, like a 13 year old, you, you know, if you ask me like, well, how do y'all train? I would say, well, we, we, you know, we have a max effort day and we have a dynamic effort day. And, you know, we, we run our dynamic effort in three week waves. And obviously we use accommodating resistance and, you know, um, whether it was bands or chains or, you know, there was always, um, that was always just around. So that was very normal. And then when I was introduced later to the idea that other people don't all train that way, I didn't understand like why, you know, um, because, and I've never done a powerlifting meet. I was always a, you know, a field sports or a track and, uh, you know, court sports or track and field athlete. I've, I've never competed in powerlifting, though a lot of my friends and a lot of my good friends are powerlifters. You know, whether it's like Anthony Oliveira or Dave Hoff, you know, some of the people that I talk to, you know, every couple of days for, for years on end, these are all, you know, high level multiply powerlifters. And I've never done a, I've never done a meet. Um, but I got a lot faster, you know, when I was, when I was playing through conjugate, I was much faster at 240 than I was at 150. You know, I was 150 as a freshman in high school, six foot one. I was 240 and, you know, 6'3 as a senior. And I was faster in the 10, the 20, the 30, 40, you know, like all the way out to 400 meters. I was faster at 240 than I was at 150. 
Um, yeah, simply because like I got a lot stronger. My, you know, my work capacity was, was exponentially greater. Um, I drug sleds every day. We didn't have jump mats. We didn't have timing systems. You know, these things like sort of existed, but they weren't accessible uh, in the way that they are now. So I, I didn't get to like track my metrics. You know, I could only tell you what I ran on hand times and stuff, but I got better seemingly at like everything pretty regularly. And the kids who trained out of my garage, one of them went on to be the first perfectly rated uh, rivals prospect in their history. First 1.0 rating, top 10 NFL draft pick. Um, my, you know, sort of longest running uh, training partner went on to to sign to Clemson um, as an offensive tackle after being a backup on JV his first two years. Um, you know, like I just saw this success over and over again. And it was um, it was really because I think when you when you know conjugate at a fairly decent level, it's really just about problem solving. It's about acknowledging like, you know, we can't peak for this game or that game or even really to peak for a certain meet. You know, you can't peak for districts. Because if you do well at districts, you got to, you got to play in, re, you know, you're going to go to regionals. And if you do well there, you're going to go to states. You know, what sense does it make to peak out for regionals and then, you know, crap out at states? So, and, and even beyond that, you know, like it, when I was a freshman and in, in doing relatively well in, in sports, um, you know, we trained through everything because what does your freshman year really mean? What's your sophomore year really mean? You know, like everyone, everyone kind of looks to try and like squeeze the most out of like that next moment and conjugate it the way that like uh, I came to know it, which is again, is very much through like the Louis Simmons. Yeah. You know, I spent literal years like going to Louis gym every day and, and filming him. I have, you know, hundreds of hours of interviews. I have hundreds of hours of, footage of him in the gym with the morning crew and the power lifters. And then with the series of coaches who would be visiting every day between the morning crew and then lunch where he'd usually take them out to a place like Manelli's or TJ's or, you know, he's famous for going to Bob Evans, but rarely was he actually at Bob Evans. You know, he was at all these other places because, uh, you know, Bob Evans got like too crowded. Um, but uh, when you start to when you start to look at conjugate in that sense, it's really about like developing the athlete on a long term. You know, Louis would always say like there is there is periodization to conjugate, but it's more on like a quadrennial sort of perspective. Um, and then when you focus down to like a weekly pers perspective or a monthly, there really isn't uh, any periodization. So most people kind of focus in this this realm that exists in between that functionally like doesn't make a lot of sense for most sports. Um, so within that, like my basic understanding of, or to me, what conjugate basically is, is it's a rotation of speeds. It's a purposeful short-term rotation of speeds. You're touching on, you know, with my kids, we're running flying tens. So they might be moving it, you know, north of nine meters per second. We're jumping, you know, we're, we're jumping with and without load. So now we're talking about, you know, 
average velocities over two meters per second, but certainly slow when compared to sprinting. You know, and accelerations are slow when compared to max V. Um, and then you start working your way down the line and you get into um, the explosive work that we do with our throws and our loaded jumps, work your way down the line further into that dynamic effort realm. And now we're moving anywhere from, say, like point, you know, 0.5 to 0.7 with most of my kids as they get stronger that window starts to speed up. It starts to get faster, right? Because we we essentially want to be sort of squatting within a window that's sort of analogous to about one third of what we can jump at, right? So as they get more explosive and as they get older, those speeds are going to shift with that, you know, because their whole force velocity curve is shifting. And then obviously we want to give the kids access to as much force as they can because Everything else down the line is built on that principle of you need to put more force into the ground. You know, if you run 23 miles per hour, how are you going to run 24? Just from a pure physics perspective, you, you need to figure out how to put more force into the ground, which is going to be hard because your steps are so short, your con ground contacts are so short. So then it becomes, well, you can only put a relative force into that ground. Well, relative of what? relative of what your absolute is. So you need to continuously raise that absolute ceiling so that you can raise everything else. And then while you're building those traits, you have to simultaneously build your work capacity, right? You can't do, you know, if you can't run 20 miles per hour, you can't repeat 20 miles per hour. If you can't lift 185, you can't repeat 185. Right. But you can't just jump into it. You have to slowly build. And again, looking at it from a multi-year perspective, I don't need to, I don't need to crush you with volume, whether it's conditioning work or work in the weight room. I don't need to crush you with anything today. I've got volleyball players, girls who, you know, will do anywhere from 540 to 720 yards of, of sled dragging. And They'll do that in, you know, near 100 degree temperatures down here in Florida, and they'll be laughing and chit-chatting as they're doing it. And if a male, you know, a good male athlete who doesn't train with me tries to jump in with them, he will get crushed because he didn't spend the, you know, eight months sort of slowly working up to that point. But those same girls can drag 720 yards and then go jump on a Vertec and hit a PR after doing all of that. You know, so like that's where it's that's where it all comes down to like problem solving. And then it's it's using your accessory work to raise whatever those lagging muscle groups are, whatever those lagging sort of joint angles are. You know, for most kids, one of the most common things, a big thing in my programming is the last thing that we do, sort of the GPP piece at the end of the workout, which we're going to contrast with jumps. Um on upper body days, it's going to be some form of loaded carry. And one part of that is to hit the upper back and the traps. But a big part of that is to get that rolling action of the foot and put them under load. That load is going to add tension by slowing them down. But they're not going to get into deep, deep flexion at the knee or the hip. So they're not really going to be sore. They can do a ton of work. You're going to build that work capacity up while simultaneously putting them under a ton of time under tension, which is going to ramp up their central nervous system. 
And when they put that bar down, all of a sudden they're going to be bouncing and, you know, walking like they've been out at sea all day. And you can tell them, hey, go over and, you know, jump on the mat or jump on the vertex. And suddenly they'll be up two, three inches from where they were at the start of the workout two hours earlier. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it's a lot of mainly it's about rotating speeds, the exercise variations, that's all set dressing. You know, we're rotating speeds and the intensities, the percentages that we work at, you know, the, it sort of stems from this idea that most of the percentage based stuff comes from sort of like the Soviet, you know, system. And they were working, you know, it, most of that's coming off of work done with Olympic lifts. And so Olympic lifts have to move relatively fast. You can't kind of like half-ass your Olympic lifts, right? The bar has to move fast enough in order for the lift to happen. So when they're, when they're talking about working at certain percentages, those percentages kind of have an inherent speed attached to them. So the percent kind of was always, it, it was there to represent basically what that speed would be when you were slowed down to that percent. They knew that that percent slows you down enough to cause enough tension to stimulate the adaptation. Um, so even then, even when you're just talking about percents, you know, uh, if you, we have a tendency sometimes to, you know, apply that percent training to things like squatting or deadlifting or benching, where you might be able to kind of lackadaisically move those percents. But that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be putting putting force and putting power into that bar to accelerate it. That's where that adaptation really lies is through, you know, moving it, you know, as fast as it can be moved. You're only moving slow because the weight, the resistance is enough to slow you down. So you use greater, greater loads to slow you down, lighter loads because you are able to move faster against them. Um, you know, so when you start looking at things as, as Louie would say all the time, instead of heavy and light, it's fast and slow because your intent is always high. So the speed of the bar, the intent is the same. The speed of the bar is dictated by what kind of, you know, what's the result of the resistance against you. I can't really rem remember what the original question was, but I that's kind of how I talk. I'll go off on subjects like that. No, you're all good. So a lot to unpack there. And I love, and I said before, and I'll say it again, I like it when people just go on tangents because we mm -hmm. can unpack different parts of, yeah. you know, your uh, conversation here. One of them that I kind of stuck to is mm -hmm. the work capacity because mm -hmm. you're talking about your, let's just say the volleyball girls sled dragging 700 yards and we have this guy or this um, high school boy come in mm -hmm. try to do the same thing and he's going to get crushed. I mean, work capacity is such a great, it's, it's something that all athletes need because you can't run one sprint, one 40 yard dash and then be gas because you're not going to mm -hmm. be any use on the field. So how do you develop work capacity through the conjugate method? Um, there's a lot of different ways to develop it. Number one you want to raise the limits of those outputs. So you want to, it. the way that I think about things, and I, I haven't really heard, I haven't heard anyone else who uses this exact kind of language, but it's how it's structured within my head. The absolute quality um, 
the absolute quality has primacy over the developmental quality. So you can't have rate of force that exceeds the absolute force. You know, so the greater your absolute force, the greater the potential of your rate of force development. Likewise with sprinting, I think of max velocity as absolute velocity, absolute speed. Uh, and again, I don't, my background it formally is not within, uh, you know, the, the academic, you know, I don't have that academic background. So I'm going to mix up words a lot. However, I have gone and spent, you know, much time and traveled the literal, the literal globe talking to the first hand, you know, talking to the primary sources about a lot of this stuff. Um, so I don't need the textbook when I have 10 hours of me sitting down with the the author of the textbook and, and breaking down, you know, the, the concept at length. So another reason why I like podcasts is because when they write the textbook, they're only going to write it one way and they're going to write it once. And a podcast, they, you know, you might hear them say it 20 different times, 20 different ways. And it might be the 20th way where suddenly it clicks because they used words that for whatever reason align in your brain better. Um, but so in the same way that say a squat might be, you know, a, a max effort squat might be an expression of that absolute force. And so if you can raise that squat relative to your body weight, then that jump being an expression of relative or of rate of force development, that jump should go up. Now, if it doesn't, there's a lot, you know, I'm going to say probably just have weak feet and ankles. You know, so go drag some sleds, do some belted marches, do some loaded carries, and that's going to strengthen your feet, your QL, everything else. And I bet you all of a sudden your jumps start to progress at the same rate as your squat again. Um, same with with lots of sprinting. But so in the same way, um, we look at like, or I look at max velocity as sort of absolute speed. I can't accelerate to a speed that I can't, I can't hit. So number one, I have to drive those qualities up, right? So I'm constantly trying to drive up our squat, which also the squat's going to have a higher correlation to acceleration. And I'm trying to drive up like our flying 10, which upright sprinting has a higher correlation to deadlifting because it's more of a hip hinge movement. So I'm, I'm kind of bringing up these things, which exist on different ends of the force velocity curve but then on top of that they kind of exist as you know slightly different sort of purposes squatting to accelerate you deadlifting to to carry you once you're upright um so looking at two things that don't really have a whole lot of crossover but except for the the need to apply force but so as you raise those both of those ceilings um, throughout the rest of the workout, how we, how we build that work capacity is number one, like, I don't really think that the workout should ever be, it should it, almost a Tony Holler type philosophy of like, you don't let today get in the way of tomorrow. Right. So to go back to, again, where all of my, you know, sort of background stems from with Westside. Bob Young's, who who passed a few years ago, Bob Young's wrote about how he used to be a, he used to be a big uh, 
sort of a friend of Dave Tate who Dave Tate had brought into West side and he wrote a, a lot of stuff for elite FTS. Um, and, uh, then he passed from illness, but Bob Young's used to write about how, when he got to West side, it drove him nuts that the first time he showed up, Louie let him do the primary exercise with them, which I believe was like a max effort. And then told him he got to do one accessory and then kicked him out of the gym. And then after a few weeks, he let him do two. And after a few weeks, he let him do, you know, so Louis wouldn't allow him to do more work than he was ready to do. You know, he was always keeping him purposefully a little bit undercooked. And when people think about Westside, you know, everyone and I'm, I'm prime, you know, I'm largely responsible for this sort of thought that everyone has that it was just like, you know, they wanted to crush you and drive you into the dirt and all. But the reality was that, you know, unless you were like really, if you were competing with Louis, he might not, he might not, you know, hold you back that way. He might go, okay, you know, you want us to kill you, we'll kill you. But if, if Louis, you know, removed his emotions from it and say, didn't see you as a competitor, you know, directly, he would, he would, you know, strongly encourage you not to bite off more than you could chew. Because the idea was you're going to be able to handle greater and greater workloads as time continues. You know, my kids right now, we just started summer this week. You know, so today was our first day of summer workouts. I want all of my kids leaving feeling good, right? There's no sense in burying them today because I want them to show back up tomorrow morning. And I want them to, you know, they jumped today. They ran some short sprints today. They, they maxed out on something today. Well, tomorrow they've got speed work. They've got their jumps. They've got their throws. I'm going to be measuring five or six different metrics tomorrow. And I expect that they all should be near their PRs and a large percentage of them should be able to hit their PRs. And so like, I'll have my kids jump at the beginning of the workout. That'll be one of the, the, say three things that we do at the beginning of the workout will be to get standing verticals. Then they'll work out. Then they'll do a GPP piece at the end, which is just sort of a finisher. But again, it's always going to be a finisher, whether it's sled or belted marching or loaded carries. It's going to be something that we can do for very high volume without overwhelming the nervous system, without, you know, sled, there's no eccentric. You, you know, you concentrically load with no vertical compression. The sled is behind them so they can do a lot of load. Um, but it's, it's more of an extensive concept than an intensive, you know, to borrow phrases from like plyos and stuff or from conditioning. We want to slowly build that capacity for them to, again, almost at a conversational type pace. And that's easier with the belted marches or the, the sled. You know, it's easy. You can have a conversation at a lot higher percentage of sort of intensity. With the loaded carries, it's it's pretty hard because, you know, it's going to wear out your hands. Um, but they might go from doing, you know, two trips of 60 yards. And then in a couple of weeks, it's going to be three trips, four trips. And how I'll decide that is let's say I had I have uh, a couple kids who have been training for a while and they jump, you know, um, I don't I don't use jump mats anymore. We use another device. Um, 
but they're jumping, you know, these two brothers, the one of the brothers, he jumped 25, four at the beginning of the workout. And then an hour and a half later, he jumped 25, six after taking about six jumps at the end of the workout after having done, um, trap bar carries for, we walk around this big building. So it's about, it's almost 600 feet that they carry this trap bar. And so today it was just 135. Now this kid's gone up to, I think, 205 around that building. But he's he's a baseball player. So he's coming off of a baseball season where he didn't really do that for like three months. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be looking at, you know, I'm going to be looking at how well do my kids jump at the beginning of that workout? That's going to give me a big indication of like their fatigue and things outside of the workout. And then I'm going to be looking at how long it takes them to finish the workout. So on a lot of our accessories today, we were doing two sets. Um, it took them, most of them were done within an hour and 40 minutes. Now we have, you know, we had sprints and things on, on the front end of that. They usually will do uh, two to three different types of jumps. They're reporting all that information. We had to do a lot of administrative stuff today and make sure that everyone's names were on the rosters and, um, you know, had kids who didn't know how to report their data and stuff. So like today was a slow day, but within a couple of weeks, what'll happen is that workout that today took them an hour and 45 minutes for the average kid in a couple of weeks, that'll take them an hour and 20 minutes. So their density will have will have gotten better. And simultaneously, what'll happen is that today, a lot of them, because again, they haven't been here. Some of them, you know, their season ended a month ago and they kind of took the last month of school off or they didn't get, you know, they're coming into the weight room once a week for like 30 minutes, you know, based on whatever the schedule was for their sport you know, with sports like baseball and softball, it's, it's hard at certain stretches of the season for them to make it into the weight room. They have like designated times when the weight room is available for them to come, but their sport is getting in the way of that. Right. And obviously the sport has to be the priority, but so all that is to say they're coming in a little bit detrained. They're, they're not where they were in January or February when they're heading into the season. Um, and that's not their fault. You know, like some of those kids, they were middle school kids. So all they could do, cause I'm at a, I'm at a K through 12. It's, it's three charter schools run by this run by Florida state university, but they exist on one big plot of land. So like functionally it's one school, um, but it's, it's K through 12. But so we have at different points of the year, if the weight room is open after school, and the kids are out of season, we get a lot of middle schoolers who come in. Um, but then once there's, you know, once JV or middle school season starts, they're usually practicing during the, you know, they don't have a weightlifting class yet. They don't have that option. So they can't get in there during the, during the school day. So those kids uh, sometimes are a little more susceptible to having those big detraining uh, effects, even though you know, they're creep, starting to creep up on puberty and they should be getting this big boost of testosterone and stuff right around the corner. So those things should be, you know, the Calvary is on the way for them, but it's not there yet. But so anyway, so those kids come and, you know, kid will be like, well, I jumped 26 before I left and I only jumped 23 two today. 
I go like, well, you know, what did you do this weekend? And it's, well, I was at the beach. I was swimming in the surf. I was, you know, all these things. It's like, okay, so you're probably fatigued from that. You're probably a little bit detrained. So what'll happen is within three weeks, all of a sudden that kid's going to start to build a base and he's going to start to rocket forward on his jumps. Some kids will come in in day one, they're off to the races, but usually those kids don't have very high outputs. You know, the usually the frustrating kids will be the kids who are capable of high outputs, but have very poor work capacity. So day one, they jump, you know, 27 inches and it's higher than all their other middle school friends. And then day two, they jump 26 and day three, they jump 25 and they just go down, down, down all week. And then the next week comes and they're still down and they're still down. And that kid will come to me frustrated and I'll say, hey, dude, just just wait. Literally, it's just it's going to take you 21 days before you start to have that super compensation effect and you start to move forward again. And sure enough, like now it's at the point where I've been at the school for almost two years. So, uh, you know, as they're getting frustrated, you know, a kid who's one year, you know, further ahead in the process will come up to him and go, yeah, man, that happened to me. I got stuck. I was mad. I thought he was, you know, full of shit. And then all of a sudden, you know, like uh, I, I hit a two inch PR out of nowhere, literally on day 21. Um. But so I'm looking at things like that. And a lot of them happen. They just so happen to time out usually in these sort of 21 day cycles. Um, I'm looking when they start to get through that workout fast enough. I'll go, okay, so we might take the accessories from two sets to three sets. Or they might go from you know two accessories to three accessories. Um, when they're, but I'm not going to do that just based on the time. I'm going to also be looking at how are their jumps at the end of the workout? Because my kids who have been there and haven't been missing days, man, they do that trap bar and they know if I jump, you know, let's say my PR is 28 and um, and I'm trying to get to 30. I want to get to 30. And this isn't like getting to 30 on the jump mat. It's it's a little more strenuous. So think about like, you know, sort of three inches higher to convert it over. Um but they know like, all right, my best is like a 28, nine. And I came in jumping, you know, 26, seven. Well, they know I'm kind of in range that if I do my belted marches at the end and I go heavy enough, it's going to give me that it's going to like wake me back up and I'm going to be able to come out and get, you know, half an inch higher than my PR. I'm going to shoot up two to three inches. And once they've done it, the next time they come in at the front of their workout, they're up, you know, not always one to one, but now they don't come in at 26. Now they come in at the low 28s. You know, the residual effect is is almost entirely still there. And occasionally a kid will come in and then literally the next day with no, uh, no post-activation potentiation, he'll hit even higher. You know, a lot of times it's you just have to figure out a way to get the kid to experience going a little faster which is easier when they have a greater work capacity because it means that you can do more tricks with them because they have more energy and more, they have more literal capacity to deal with. So we look at both density and sort of their, you know, accumulated relative, you know, level of fitness. But I I'm, I'm using those two markers of time and then how well they do, particularly at a very fast explosive movement that all the textbooks will tell you they should be worse at two hours in. But if you do it right, it'll be better two hours in. Um, 
So that's, you know, it, it's really just like, we don't want to rush. They're like my wrestlers, they, they're not going to have a match until October that means anything. My volleyball players, they're not going to have anything until September that means anything. So why rush to, you know, have them puke on a track or, or feel, you know, feel bad this afternoon? I want them to wake up almost thinking like, you know, they didn't even have a workout. Maybe they feel it a tiny bit, but it's it's just like just enough to barely remind you that it happened. Not enough that you come in and slow down. And a lot of like my baseball players, they're going to do their exit velos and stuff at the end of and the end of our workouts, because that's when we're going to shift the radar guns from tracking med balls to to, you know, being up on the nets and allowing them to do things like that. So I don't want them to be so crushed by the workout that they don't get to have like any of the fun at the end. Yeah, man. So, um, again, a lot to unpack there, but I love the idea of you're kind of like, and you mentioned it too, like a Tony Holler method mm-hmm. where fatigue is the enemy. It's not what we want in the end result of the workout or in the training session, because yeah. if they are fried Monday, then they're going to be fried and useless Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week. So, I mean, I love that mentality of not frying them you know, right off the bat and, mm-hmm. you know, keeping them fresh, you know, fatigue is the enemy. It's not what we want. It's not the end result of what we want. Um, another thing that you really talked about with the work capacity that I really like, and I started doing this with my own athletes as well. So we, the situation that I was in, okay, mm-hmm. we did, we, we didn't have that much space. I had four racks and, you know, a football team, baseball, softball, and track team to yeah. program for. You know, you, you got about 1,200 square mile or square feet of space, you know, figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, um, what oh, happened? 1,400 right now. Yeah. yeah. I used to be at a school where it was uh, about 10,000, but it was only six racks. So we'd have 90 kids and six racks. Uh, and 10,000 square feet and lots of, you know, like, so I could set up a ton of stuff and we'd kind of break it up. These kids would be doing plyos and sprints and throws and stuff. These kids would be doing their strength stuff. And then we, we could flip flop. Um, now we've got 10 racks, 1400 square feet. Um, we have a big roll up door that opens up outside. And then I've got eight sleds outside. I've got, uh, you know, I, I've got something like 12 different jump devices, uh, two vertex, three or four broad jump mats, you know, like, so I kind of set up a huge array of, you know, here's where all your plyos and throws are going to be and stuff. Here's, you know, and then over on that sidewalk, we're, we're running acceleration stuff and we've got the track over there, it, but the track's now like, I used to be at a gym where the track was 12 feet from the entrance to the weight room. And now I'm at one where it's the track is over a quarter of a mile away. Um, so it's a huge just time suck to to do, you know, max VR speed stuff on the track and get over, you know, like that's it's part of why our workouts are usually an hour and a half to two hours long. Um, but even then, you know, again, if you make it enjoyable, it, I have kids that I have to, you know, I had to kick kids out today and all last week who you know it's two and a half three hours in and i'm like yo man you gotta y'all gotta 
figure out a carpool situation or something because they still want to do stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm having to tell them like, Hey man, you're, you're going to, again, we're, we're trying not to go over the cliff. Um, but they have so much fun with everything because there's no punishment aspect to it. Um, so a lot of times that means that they're going to get long, like coach Fahey lectures and stuff that are really just, I'm trying to kill time and distract you all from the, the sort of like primal need to get a wicked pump on something that we already more than hit this morning. Yeah, man. Um, kind of going back to what I was talking about too, the school house that we have four racks and you know, I'm, I'm still fairly green into this field. You know, I had a couple of years experience. I've had an internship, you know, very still kind of green, still trying to figure things out. Yeah. I, I know some things, still trying to figure some things out. But um, four racks, and I programmed, I was like, okay, I got bench press and barbell bent over rows. I was like, well, we don't have the space for that. You mm-hmm. know, and um, in the facility that we're in, uh, the way that I structured things is was our main lift was, you know, just our strength components, our big, our big rocks, right? Bench, mm-hmm. deadlift, um, squats, things like that, RDLs, and then um, our accessory work. So all that was two sets. And so what you were talking about, have, having two sets, and then when they start to kind of figure things out and, you know, that time starts to shorten down in their workouts, go to three sets, and then, you know, that's, that's an awesome way to actually build capacity and, I guess subconsciously didn't realize that and kind of clicked when you kind of mentioned about it. So, um, yeah. awesome stuff there, man. Now, the next part of this that I really want to talk about is West Side versus the World. Because right. you directed it, you you were the one man army behind it, basically. Yeah. Um, when when you were kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, so kind of walk us through that whole process of filming and your experience with Louie and everything in between, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Louie, Louie, uh, Louie was, was one of the most unique, um, people that I've ever met, you know, doing. So from 2009 to, uh, you know, until like 2018, basically, um, filmmaking and and you know reality tv production and stuff um which i still do some of i'm still finishing a, a documentary right now that's um another sort of powerlifting based one um and is more hopefully is sort of more what people thought kind of that west side versus the world would be because west side versus the world was very retrospective meaning you know it was telling a story that had already happened um the movie that I'm working on now, um, which I don't have a title for, I might have a title for it, but I'm, I'm not going to say it until I know that that's the word that I'm going to use. Um, it's, it's following, um, Dave Hoff and Anthony Oliveira and Bob Merck and, and some, uh, and Chanel, uh, Chanel Millet Slater, who's probably the toughest human I've ever like seen. Um, the the very first meet that I was at where I was filming I wasn't I, she wasn't even in the movie at the time I didn't know her um I watched her tear her ACL in a squat she went to the hospital she came back 
the meat was running long. So with like her, her leg in a splint, she laid down to do bench. She did token bench. It was easy. She was like, well, that doesn't bother my leg at all. Uh, though she had to be like helped up off the, off the bench. She did a token bench and then she put on a shirt because she was a multiply bencher. She's a small girl. And she went to what would have been her second attempt and it felt good. Um, so she told her coach, who was Laura Phelps, um, who is, you know, the probably the sort of greatest multiply female of all time. Um, one of the, you know, Hall of Fame type lifter. Um, she told Laura, I want to go for a PR, you know, I'm not going to be able to PR my total because I, you know, blew out my knee on my squat. I'm not going to be able to PR my deadlift. So I'm just going to be tokening out to finish the meet and simply say that because it was her first big invitational sort of pro style meet. So she wanted to do go for a PR. Um, Laura said, well, you know, like you're not really stable and your arms kind of doing this weird thing. And she's like, ah, I'll be fine. What, what am I going to do? I've already torn my ACL. So she went out and uh, from three feet away, I was filming. She broke her forearm. It snapped in the middle of, yeah, it's, it snapped. It was a very loud, audible noise. Um, and she hopped up off the bench and like kind of waved her floppy arm around and <laughs> looked out at 400 people in the audience. And then in like just complete embarrassment, not really feeling the pain of what had just happened, just the embarrassment of like, I just hurt myself again in full in front of this room full of people. Turn and ran or turned and ran out of the out of the room. Um, and I followed her, not as long as I should have, but uh I, I followed her on out. And then I ended up, she showed up a few months later at the next meet that I was filming. Um, and I ended up adding her sort of to the cast of characters of who I was following for this big multi-year uh, kind of pumping iron-esque. That's the style of it. And I think that's what people were sort of expecting with Westside versus the world, um, which again, wasn't really possible given the state of the gym and the state of Louis's sort of health and whatnot. But so anyways, in making Westside versus the world, um, again, I had been to Westside when it was over on Dimmerist. The sort of, you know, as we say in the movie, the the little tiny gym with the blacked out windows that looked like it could have been a strip club or something um, that was in the ghetto. Like I had been to that version of Westside as a 12 year old. Um, I had, you know, Louie had me dragging sleds and throwing medicine balls and stuff out in the parking lot. Uh, and I had I didn't really understand like. Well, at the time, my dad trained at our house and people were coming over to our house all the time. So I didn't know what really what like a regular sort of gym felt like. I thought they were all like weird, dirty, dingy kind of, you know, places with guys who were uh, sort of that extreme and that committed to what they were doing. Um, but so I grew up just with that exposure. And then I was working on a food show for the Travel Channel. And I told one of my coworkers about Westside and she was a vegan. She had never, she had never played an organized sport in her entire life. She was from Simi Valley and she ended up getting hired as an executive a couple of years later at a reality TV show or, or a reality company, company that had something like, you know, they had a hundred plus uh, 
programs that they had gotten placed on air. They did big things like Whale Wars and Deadliest Catch, stuff like that. And so she's at this company and she calls me up and she said, you know, like everyone at the time was looking for more male oriented reality content. And she said, you know, I just can't shake like that story that you told me about the the gym with the crazy old guy at the center. And so she asked, you know, if I would be interested in partnering with her company to produce a reality series on Westside. And I was like, well, that would be cool because y'all are talking about like real money and like credits that I at that point didn't have on my resume. Um, but I started thinking about it. And I was like, but they'll never go for it. But it got me thinking like, if that woman who, you know, didn't, she had never been a member of a gym period. She had never played sports, but she remembered a story that I had told her in passing several years earlier. And I was like, if she can remember that, um, then a few things. Number one, she's not the target demo for that at all. So if she remembers it, it says two things, both that I am a capable storyteller because her whole job is to find and buy stories. And she's now trying to buy a story from me in this, in this instance. So I'm a capable storyteller. Like I can really do this. I can make a living doing this. I can do this at a high enough level. Like I can do this at a level high enough that people care. And I think that a lot of people can do a lot of things at a high enough level that people care, but we all sort of have this, um, we all have this inclination to like put ourselves down as though we can't possibly be that special. You know, I can't really be that special. I can't really be that good at this. You know, it, everyone talks about Dunning Kruger and stuff all the time on Twitter, but the opposite effect of that is imposter syndrome, which I think is just as rife um, and is supported by better data. But that's neither here nor there. But um, so I thought like, you know, I can do this at a high enough level and this is a juicy enough story that there's enough meat on the bone that this woman who has zero, like on a Venn diagram, it would just be two disconnected circles. So I was like, so this is maybe worth thinking about. And I started talking to some people. I talked to uh, Jim McDonald, who was um, close with Chris Bell and Mark Bell at the time. Um, I talked to Chris Bell about it early on. He had said, you know, well, I tried making a, a documentary about Westside Barbell. These people are crazy. You don't want to do it. Um, I kept talking to people and everyone kept telling me they're crazy. You don't want to do it. You know, Louis a madman. Um, he's really difficult to work with. And I'm also the type of person that I'm extremely competitive and I like a challenge. So if if you spend your whole argument telling me why I can't or shouldn't, my the whole time on the other side of it in my head i'm going to be just problem solving or well maybe you shouldn't do that but how would you be able to and so i was like well we can't do it within a reality tv show format because most reality tv shows are formatted around ideas like you're going to shoot for 11 to 16 weeks and that you know and say let's say it's a six episode order which would be kind of like a trial run for a new show. Six episode order, they're going to want to shoot for maybe like 11 weeks. And in those six episodes, 
because they're not familiar with the concept and they're only going to spend a couple months developing it and then spend a few, you know, maybe a few months pitching it. So they're not, and they're going to be pitching a dozen things at the same time. And so they're going to have, you know, maybe six people who all have a dozen ideas that they have to pitch. It's a numbers game for them. So they're not actually going to intimately get to know the subject, you know, and the source material. They're they're looking to try and find something that they can plug into a tried and true model that they have. They're not going to try and solve for your individual story needs. So part of that was, you know, we got as far as having some initial talks and they said, you know, here's what we think. And they had done some competition and sports related shows before and stuff. And so they were like, well, the centerpiece of every every episode has to be a meet. I go, okay. well, my next question and they started talking and they answered my next question. What's the shooting schedule that you all think? And they're like, well. We figure, you know, we can do it this way. They basically, they wanted to shoot all of the meets in one week. And I was like, that's not how it works, especially with multiply lifting. Like you're going to have Dave Hoff try and attempt 3000 pounds six times in a week. He'll die. Like that's, (laughs) he's going to, he's going to wake up in the middle of the night with a bloody nose and a heart attack. Like you can't put the body through that kind of stress. That's just not how it works. And so I had a couple conversations with them trying to say, like, you know, there's all these other things that are legitimately interesting. And they're, I can tell you with 100% certainty, all these other things will come up. All these challenges that are interesting to look at will come up. But of course, that would mean inventing a model that had no prior data on it. So that's a scary concept. So they didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to sort of like pervert or distort you know, sort of the, what I thought could be done just in order to, in all likelihood, get a check to start the project, then get told no by Louie, and then never be able to pursue anything down that field again. So instead, my dad ended up telling Louie, Louie asked to do a meeting with me, And the meeting went like this. Louis called, my dad told me a couple hours before the meeting, hey, Louis is going to do a meeting with you. At the time I was working on a uh, documentary on Bobby Bowden. And I was like, well, I'm like, I'm booked for the next year. What are you talking about? And he's like, well, Louis is going to call you tomorrow morning. And this was like in the middle of the night. So I was like, I'm not prepared to talk to Louis. Like what's what am I going to tell him? Hey, I don't have any money. I don't have any crew. I don't have any, you know, I have no investment. I have no time. Like I have literally nothing. Let's make a movie. Um, but so Louis called me and he said, you know, Hey, it's Louis Simmons. And I said, you know, Oh, hi, Louis. And he goes, so your dad tells me you want to make a movie. I said, well, yeah. And he goes, let me stop you. No. So it was literally, it took 12 seconds, 12 seconds. And he said, no. Uh, he didn't hear any pitch. He just said, I heard you want to do it. Let me stop you. No. And, uh, but then he said, but what would you want to do? And so I started to kind of talk about it. And he started asking me what I knew about conjugate and stuff. And because um, he he had a feeling that we had met before, but he couldn't really remember, you know, like, because I wasn't a power lifter. I, you know, I had never done anything in a meet. Um. But so he kept, you know, he he told me no over and over again for almost an hour. 
And then he said he was going to send me some stuff and that he, uh, that I could call back anytime. And two days later, a giant box showed up at my doorstep that had every DVD and video that he had, he had ever put together and had every book that he had ever written and had a bunch of t-shirts that at the time I was 200 and uh, about, you know, 195, 200 pounds. I was doing a lot of barefoot running. I was running seven to 13 miles a day. Um, and in that first conversation, Louis said, you know, how tall are you? And I said, six, three. And he said, how much do you weigh? And I said, I don't know, uh, 200 ish pounds. And he goes, no, no, no. You need to be 275 at least. You need to be 275 just to start. And I was like, Louis, I'm not looking to be a lifter. I'm, I, I make movies. What are you? And he, he just said, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't fill out your leverages. You probably need to be a 308. Yeah. You need to be a 308 or super heavy. And so he asked at the end of the call, he asked me what my shirt size was. And I said, well, large XL, like I was, I was wearing, you know, I was, I was, I had abs, I was skinny and I had, you know, I had a little bit of definition. So I wanted to show it off. And, uh, he sends me this box and it's got like six shirts and they're all double X. And so I looked at that and I said like that, no, it wasn't a no, that was a challenge. And again, I like a challenge. So I read every book. I watched every DVD. I read them all back. I just all day I spent the Bobby Bowden thing ended up losing funding for, you know, the foreseeable future at the time. It ended up coming out in like 2018, maybe 2017, 2018 Bowden dynasty, but it went through some turmoil itself, which is common with movies, um, especially documentaries because they take years. Um, so suddenly I had all this time. And I, I read everything, read it twice. Again, I could fall back on this period of like four or five years where I trained consistently when I was younger. And, you know, as I got back into it, I was like, oh, I, I remember doing all this. And I, I knew that we did it back then. And I kind of knew some of the broad strokes on why. But now as an adult rereading it back, and then I call up my dad and he had all he has still has all of my training logs. So literally, like I, my dad broke it down with me and was like, yeah, this is what we did this. And then we did this and we did. It. And I could remember like, oh, I experienced this already. I kind of experienced it without questioning it at all. But I did that for years. So I understood the patterns of it, um, which is also like. Says a lot about how I think that people kind of now try and rush that education process as well. And, you know, everyone should like spend a considerable amount of time doing someone else's thing until they come to actually understand the logic and the hows and whys of their whole concept. And then start thinking about how you would swap things out to better suit your situation. Because at the end of the day, there are no real secrets. Um, but what is actually different functionally is like, you know, you got 1200 square feet and you got four racks and you got an X amount of kids, whatever, you know, like, um, but so I called Louie back about six weeks later. Uh, we talked for an hour and at the end he said, well, still no, but you know, give me a call. And at this point, like I'm in my late twenties, I'm like 27, maybe this is like 2014 ish. Um, and Louie is, you know, Louie's in his sixties at that point. Um, so like, it's and I was in California and he was in Ohio. It's like it didn't 
we weren't like we weren't friends. There wasn't a natural reason for the two of us to both be interacting. Um, but he kept wanting me to call him and the calls kept getting longer and longer. And, and so it was just sort of like every two weeks we had kind of a standing call. And then, uh, and normally he would have to go, he would get busy. And then this one night, um, I had called him relatively early in the, like in the, the scheme of when we normally would talk. I called him around like maybe four o'clock and it was like August. And so the sun doesn't set for a long time. And I, I look out my window and I notice I'm in California and it's dark. When we started the phone call, like there was still light outside where Louie was. And now I'm looking out and I'm like, man, we've been on the phone for like three and a half hours. And we're talking, you know, most of my conversations with Louie were, you know, they had nothing to do with powerlifting. There, we had far more conversations about track. You know, people don't realize that like he was, there's, again, I have a part in all these things that I complain about because millions of people now have, have seen West Side through the lens of my movie. Um, I was just telling someone like two days ago about this or yesterday, maybe about it. But uh, there's a line in the movie towards the end. You know, when you make a movie, you have to kind of structure things. Uh, you can't like tell people aren't people don't exist sort of like on one smooth storyline. You do, you know, you exist on one smooth storyline for one part of the afternoon and then you go home and, you know, like other things you interact with other people. And because of that, all these storylines kind of get mixed up. And so people are spending different parts of the same periods of time pursuing different goals. But when you tell it back in a documentary and you only have, you know, 90 minutes, you have to consolidate and streamline things. So in the third act of the movie, you know, we talk, talk with Joey Batson and Buddy Morris and Bill Gillespie and, you know, all these guys who had the pleasure of like going to their homes or going to their gyms or going to their schools. Um, you know, and, and they're all talking about the relationships they had with Louie. And Dave Tate talks about how Louie's focus started to shift from powerlifting to other sports. Well, Dave Tate, if you ever talk to him about Westside, and if you like listen to say like the Table Talk podcast a lot, you, you'll pick up on this. Dave Tate, he doesn't like to talk about periods of Westside when he wasn't there. In the movie, he's talking about how Louis' focus changed. Dave Tate left Westside in 2003. So when he's talking about Louis' focus changing from powerlifting to sports, He's talking about 20 years ago. That's when that started to really happen in a major way. You know, Bill Gillespie, when he's talking about when he first met Louis and, you know, first started reading from Louis, that's in the 80s. You know, he's a thrower and a young coach. And, you know, and then he goes to Washington and they win a national title and he goes to Liberty and then he goes to the Seahawks and they make it to the Super Bowl and then he goes back to Liberty. You know, and Dave Williams from Liberty is talking about these stories from the early and mid 90s, talking about bands, you know, going and seeing the chains and stuff. We're talking about like 94 to 96. But within the movie and having to structure it out, 
I can't tell that simultaneous because it's just like, well, there's too much stuff going on. You can't follow. So it's this era of the lifters, this era of the lifters, this era of the, oh, and then the accommodating resistance comes in and then they move from this location to this location. But it's like simultaneous to all that and largely disconnected from the lifters in the building. Louis was interested in all of these concepts with other sports. You know, he's training Butch Reynolds in the mid 90s. He trained another uh, 400 meter gold medalist for the 2000 games, you know, like. But everyone boxes him into just he's the powerlifting guy because he looks like a powerlifter because he was a powerlifter forever. But it's also he grew up in a different time. If he had grown up down the street from a boxing gym, he would have been a boxer. If he wasn't five foot five, he probably would have played other sports. You know, he probably would have played baseball. He, you know, if he grew up in Tallahassee, that's a football player if you're not five five, you know. Um, but so anyways, I just saw so many parts of him and so many of the conversations that we had were about training for other sports. And about, you know, talking to him about, you know, hey, I got this girl who comes over. She's a hurdler from Ohio State. Here's what we're doing with her right now. But I don't have, you know, I didn't have permission to use that girl. I like, you know, Ohio State didn't want to publicize. They're sending people to West Side, you know, Um, other track coaches and things and sport coaches. They didn't want to publicize that, like, they're outsourcing big chunks of their training. Um. But yeah, so I it, like Louis was incredibly intense. He didn't have a lot of hobbies. He was very funny. He talked in riddles in this really cool way that I absolutely loved where, you know, if if you were having a conversation with Louis, because people would reach out to him all the time. Louis had this awesome way of figuring out whether he wanted to talk to you by saying like he'll, he would tell the first sort of half of a riddle and then he'd just look at you and kind of like do that with his hand and if you didn't chuckle like you knew like if you couldn't fill in the rest you know like uh i did it back to him once we were talking about you know going back to when i worked at nfl network we were talking about um Jameis winston having a slow release I said, Jameis Winston was also on FSU's baseball team. He sat 94, 95 miles per hour. How do you throw 95 miles per hour slow? And I just smiled and looked at him. And Louie goes, and like right in that moment, that was when we built the rapport because he understood what I was saying. It didn't matter how long the arm traversed. In order to throw a baseball that fast, the arm yeah, it cycles over a, a relatively great distance to build that momentum. But it comes out fast as hell. The arm is moving fast as hell. And ultimately, that safety, he can't read the path of the arm. Or he can read it, but he only has the time that that happens to break on the ball. And so if the ball covered a greater, you know, a, the release was a greater windup uh, before, before the actual release, then the ball is also coming out faster. So you have the same, you know, three, four tenths of a second to see that a throw is about to happen. But then once the ball leaves the hand, it actually comes out much hotter because it traveled a greater distance while still in the hand. 
it was things like that that viewing you know taking a taking a sort of standardized concept you know a, a thing that people were trying to create a shortcut of like you know well this must you know he he was louis loved to say you know with about cleans cleans are too slow to make you fast and too fast to make you strong and people people get upset about that and he'd go well you know talk to talk to you know talk to other olympic lifters if they're not fast enough to get under the bar what are they going to do they're going to go do jumps right like if they were fast if the cleans made you fast enough then they wouldn't need to do jumps but the best ones do jumps and if the cleans could make you strong then they wouldn't need to do squats but the best ones can squat a house right cuz you can't slow the the clean has to happen fast enough to get the bar from you know from your mid thigh up to a rack position that's faster you know that's inherently sort of like a notch too fast to really get strong and then some people will argue with that and louis would tell the story of when he was young and he said you know when i was in ninth grade i i clean and jerked 260 you know or i i clean and jerked 265 and i squatted 400 and i weighed 145 pounds and when i was in 12th grade i clean and jerked you know 275 and I squatted 410 and I weighed 165 pounds. The story there is not just, oh, he did, he did, you know, lifting. It's he was using the clean to drive up his squat. And what did that do? Eventually, he couldn't clean anymore because he wasn't strong enough. Right. And because he was trying to use the, the clean as the primary, you know, device. He got to a point where he couldn't clean more weight. And because he couldn't clean more weight, he couldn't stimulate that squat to go up either. And then he met power lifters, you know, at, right before he left for Vietnam. And this is like 1969 or something. But he meets power lifters and he realizes, oh, my God, they've been doing like they do their squats to drive up their squats. And look at how strong they are, you know, like. And he suddenly goes from, you know, 410 to 450 easily in a few weeks. And he's like, oh, I needed to do something that was slower than the clean in order to get stronger. And now that I'm stronger, I can also clean more. <laughs> like, you know, um, but so understanding those like physical concepts that go beyond just sort of like the the, the truisms and the the conventions that people spit out, you know, he could he wasn't a conventional person he didn't exist well within conventional society he couldn't make small talk to save his life he didn't know what to do if you didn't want to talk to him about either like mma and fighting or you know training if you wanted to talk to him about anything else he just kind of like he would become the most awkward person on the planet but if you wanted to you know if you asked him about like hey where do you read that he could do this amazing trick where he'd he'd yell at Tom, who was who's now the the GM at Westside, and he go, Tom, you know, pull out super training, turn to, and he he could tell you what page it was on and what paragraph just from memory, because he's you know he's an old dude who was pre social media, so all he he didn't watch TV, he didn't he didn't care about anything. He kind of cared about the Browns. He didn't really care about the Cavs. 
He liked Ohio State football. But aside from those, you know, three-hour chunks, you know, 12 times a year, the whole rest of the time, he just had his nose in a book or he was in the gym. And he just read the same books over and over again because he knew every time he read them, he was going to read something that made him think about something differently. But he literally would read and reread books until he could tell you where within each page different concepts were. And I mean, I would sit there trying to stump him just like, well, when you came up with, you know, static overcome by dynamic, where did you first hear that term? And he'd, Tom, pull out, you know, and he like a book would appear and his assistant would turn, he'd turn the page and he'd go, what does it say right there? Read it. You know, it was like a parlor game to him. Um, and then he was, yeah, he was, he was funny. He was difficult. Um, it's a lot like, uh, we talked once about, um, the movie Beware Mr. Baker, which is all about Ginger Baker from the movie or from the band Cream back in the seventies. Um, and where, uh, and it was a movie about how a, a dude in his late twenties went to go interview a wild man from the seventies who now was in his seventies. So very analogous to like Louie and I, and kind of how, you know, you can get close to that guy in that movie. The spoiler is that Ginger Baker beats the crap out of the director and the director ends up, he's angry about it at first. And then with blood pouring down his face, he turns to the camera and smiles and realizes that number one, that would be the last time he and Ginger would ever be in the same place. But number two, for that little moment in time, when Ginger Baker was blooding his face with a cane, he realized that's the guy that everyone's told me the stories about. And I also have some stories about Lou that are like that, uh, that I have promised that I will not tell in public. But they're wild. Uh, the, the kind of things where like, law enforcement could easily have gotten involved. Um, but I knew like, oh, this is a this is a test because everyone told me, you know, he's going to test you. He's going to eventually do things to to mess with you and, and essentially see, will you quit? So to to really make a long story that's already really long, a bit shorter. Um, after months of doing this phone tag and going back and forth, we were on the phone for like three and a half hours. And I was like, Lou, I have to go. And he, he said, well, when are we going to do this again? And now he wasn't even telling me we're not going to do the movie. He just wanted to know when we were going to talk again on the phone. And I was like, you know, instead of instead of doing these phone calls, much as I enjoy them, how about we just pencil in and say that you agreed to do the movie? And I'll come up and you'll get mad and you'll kick me out. I already know that'll happen. And then I'll come back when you've calmed down and I'll say, all right, Lou, you know, what happened? What do we need to do? And sure enough. You know, 2015, I go up there and start shooting, get kicked out a handful of times, have discussions about what, do, you know, how do we need to make this work? You know, like, how do you give me a sign of when, like, you're about to kill me uh, so that, you know, you don't whip a plate across the gym at my head or something? Um, not that he did that, but um, how basically, like, let me kind of know what some of the boundaries are ahead of time. And I'll be very respectful of those. And if we ever run into problems, you know, we'll address it then. And, you know, four years later, 
or three years later, movie debuts at the Arnold. Um, he does not come. Um, but he, uh, he asked me along the way several things that let me know he had seen the movie, though he liked to publicly say that he didn't and he never would. But he kind of messed up and, and rebutted something that he said in it. And I was like, Lou, you, that's your mouth. You're the one, I, you don't hear my voice, but like one or two times, it's just me asking a question. Every, like, you're the person who has the most screen time saying the most stuff. Um, yeah. And then the movie comes out. And again, you run into that weird place of like, you know, by this point, he's a man in his seventies and I'm a man in my thirties. And, um, obviously this before he passed but like that you just run into this weird place of you know years had passed and i knew everything there was to know about him and he didn't really know anything about me because that was the nature of of what the project was you know when you make when i make a documentary about someone or i'm i'm doing sort of these extensive interviews about people i'm 100% focused on getting you know the information from them and it is really weird where like you come away from it. Not only do I spend that time learning all there is to know about them from them and from the people who've known them, you know, and 40, 50 people who've known him from different points in his life. But then I go and I watch it all back. And I, you know, I turn 250 hours into an hour and a half. Um, so I come away. I come away knowing stories about events that I was never at to witness from, you know, a dozen different angles. And the, the other person inevitably kind of comes away um, most of the time, especially when like they're not really your age group or, you know, like life would never bring the two of us together, especially because at that point in time, I wasn't really coaching. You know, I was, uh, I I traveled, you know, I traveled across the US, Canada, Australia. I talked to a lot of coaches. I did seminars and stuff, but I was just talking about like the things that I knew from like a theory kind of perspective and then screening the movie. Um, and I'd tell people what I saw at West Side. You know, there's one time where Louie and I did a presentation together um, on an Arnold weekend. He he just came and grabbed me and was like, hey, come basically like come interpret for me because all these all these strangers, you know, in my gym, I don't know how to I don't know how to take this and make it like palatable to a regular person. He's like, I haven't been a regular person in so long. I don't even know what people are these days. Like I live here in this little tiny bubble that I built for myself. But eventually the movie's over and then there's not really like a reason for either of us to pick up that phone um and it suddenly becomes it becomes very strange because then like we'd still see each other i would still go up to the gym um you know and, and like he, we realized like or he realized i knew i had told him ahead of time like when the movie's done it's going to be really weird because i'm not going to talk to you the same way because at the end of the day, like we're not like I I can have respect and admiration and I can be fascinated by him. But at the end of the day, like. Dude, I live uh, like, you know, 1500 miles away. And there's there's not 
not a lot of overlap, you know, like we're not going to go get drinks after this, you know, like we're not in the same fantasy football leagues just because his life was so sort of weirdly uh, constructed around this like singular pursuit. Um, And I think if a lot more people like kind of were willing to live that way, maybe we'd have more Louis. But, you know, most people don't want to do that. Most people want to be a relative expert and also have a relative life and a relative, you know, like existence on places like Twitter and, you know, have friends and have lots of connections uh, that are a bit more human. Yeah. Well, coach, that that was incredible. (laughs) You know, um, there's a lot of stuff in there that we can unpack and we can have a four-hour episode here, man, but uh, I do want to say that, you know, um, the movie, and I I, I have never seen What's Side versus the World. I've never seen it. Um, When I was coming up on Twitter, you know, um, I never heard of who Louie was Mm -hmm. because, you know, I I didn't grow up in that era. Um, Uh As I started kind of learning more about, like, conjugate training and you know different styles of training like triphasic conjugate whatever you know i heard the name of louis simmons but i didn't know like the impact that mm-hmm. he had on people's lives and i've seen on twitter i me- i still remember the day that louis passed and the impact that he had on several other people as well um and it- it's prevalent inside of you and very much you know everyone else that came in contact with him who trained in his gym, who, um, you know, trained under him and everything like that, man, that he's made the biggest impact on not even just, like, the strength and conditioning world, but them as people as well, man, and that's completely awesome there. Uh, Coach, I just want to say thank you for being on uh, the Conjugate Chats and, you know, just connecting with one another. I know it's one thing to connect through a phone and Twitter and text messages but it's another to sit down and you know have that face-to-face conversation man it's completely awesome yeah anytime i'm I'm happy to be here thanks for inviting me on um since you brought up west side versus the world um a few months ago because the movie's been out like five years now five years and change um but a few months ago uh my distribution company put it up on youtube for free um so since it's up there, go you know, everyone can go watch it in its entirety um, with whatever advertisements YouTube puts on it. Uh, I frankly don't care about the money side of it, it you know, anymore. It's, it's been out. It's, it's made its money. Um, but if you are just interested in learning or interested in seeing it, uh, it's up there. Go watch all. I think it's like 93 minutes. I don't know. Yeah, man. Not definitely. Well, I've, I've been mean to, man. You know, um, with school schedules and everything like that, yeah. you know, it's it's definitely hard to fit, you know, just a little time and place and everything and life happens, but... Yeah, um, I get it. I don't watch a lot of my friends' movies, so... So, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely going to watch it at some given point. It may not be in the next 24 hours, but at some given point, definitely watch it, and it'll probably be something for everyone to watch as well. Yeah. And uh, that's another episode of the Conjugate Chats. Please follow social media platforms at Conjugate Chat Podcast on Twitter and TikTok. Also, 
Follow Coach Michael on here on his social medias as well. In the name of strength, stay strong and have a day today. And before we end this episode here, I wanted to bring the light to something. Um, most people on here are either strength coaches or aspiring strength coaches. Um, for those that are aspiring strength coaches out there, um, I set up a Gumroad account, a uh, store even, to provide value back into the field of strength conditioning. Starting with, um, I have study guys on there uh, for anyone that's not past the CSCS or is going to take the CSCS. Um, these are study guys that I've developed over the last three years that I've used in my attempts to pass the CSCS and I wanted to bring that value here to our podcast. So if you will go to the link in the description of this episode, you'll see a link to my Gumroad in which you can purchase or just download for free um, the study guys for CSCS, a couple of my guides for in uh, in season training, and also um, a couple of our products in there as well. Again, thank you for listening in on the Conjuring Chats, and thank you for your continuous support.